I am Belinda, and tonight I'm going to be speaking for our Dawn of a Kingdom series, which is where we're looking at a book in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, working our way through it slowly, and um, (laughs) seeing what God speaks and how he moves through that book. So I was given the task of three whole chapters, following on from a big old story last week, where David, who is the anointed or new anointed king, who's going to come in and take over from Saul soon, killed a giant called Goliath, a story you might be familiar with. It's okay if you're not, um, because we won't draw on that too much today. But I've been tasked with three big old chapters. They are wild, but they are 96 verses long. So unless you fancy like staying till 10, and I can do accents and everything and read through all 96, if you don't mind, I might just summarize. But I mean, if you want me to... I do a good soul, but anyway, (laughs) let me summarize them for you. I would massively say to go away and read them. They're crazy. Some like weird stuff happens. I'll tell you some of my fave bits. So like I said, David, who has picked to be an anointed king, not yet king, just killed Goliath. And he did this because Goliath is an enemy of um, Saul, the king. And he goes along, taking Goliath's head with him, I mean what, to see Saul with this head and said, hey, look, I've killed Goliath. Saul's super happy about it, says, David, you're my man. You are going to be in charge of my armies. And David does really, really well. Basically, anything he puts his hand to, he succeeds at. And that's great. And people love him for it. People love him a little bit more than Saul for it. He seems to get a bit more famous, actually, for the way he he is able to kill so many of his enemies compared to Saul the king. And Saul is not happy about that whatsoever. He starts to get really envious of David, of David's fame, and the fact that David is able to succeed so well. He starts to get like besotted with jealousy and actually fear as well as he sees that God is with David. And so he plots to kill David. Now, part of his plot is that he wants to marry his daughter off to David, which are like, hold up a second, that just seems like it'll make it worse. But actually, his plan is this, that Almost a bit like now, how he asks, or a guy asks for a girl's hand in marriage, goes to the father and says, can I have your daughter to marry her? Um, rather than do that, Saul's like, can you fetch me 104 skins of the Philistines? I'm, I mean, I'm so thankful that my dad didn't say that to Chris when he asked for my hand in marriage. <laughs> can you imagine? David does one better and manages to chop 200 and bring them back to Saul and doesn't get himself killed, which only makes Saul more frustrated. You'd think he'd be happy with his 204 skins, but never mind. Um, and Saul tries to kill David. So he ends up throwing spears at David, missing. Saul in this three chapters permanently has a spear in his hand, but can't hit a single target. So David runs away. He seeks refuge, and he goes to actually the namesake of this book to see Samuel. Now, Samuel was the one who a few chapters ago sort of said, you will be the king. So he hides with Samuel. Saul follows, tries to find him. Saul gets a little bit weird at this point. Um, He kind of just goes a bit manic, and he strips off all his clothes and lies on the floor all day and all night. And and that's sort of the end of that bit. That's all we find out about that. That's what he does. Um, So his coping mechanism might not be that appropriate. He goes home. David returns as well. But now it's crunch time. We need to decide what to do. David is certain that Saul wants to kill him. And so what he does is he goes and meets up with his really good friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. And he says, help, what, like, what should we do? And they plot this plan. David basically won't go to dinner. And if Saul gets cross about the fact he's not at dinner, then David needs to get out of the city. If Saul's chill about it, he can stay. Saul gets mad. He throws a spear, again missing, obviously, at Jonathan. And um, Jonathan quickly goes and tells David to flee. And David flees. 
So it's big. These chapters, I mean, they're a bit crazy, aren't they? It's a bit like a very elaborate, I don't know, episode of some kind of TV drama. All sorts happens. Definitely read them. That's just a highlight of some of the exciting parts. But as I read through these, I was struck by one man and his response to everything that goes on. It wasn't David and his grace for Saul, despite the fact Saul kept trying to kill him. It wasn't that Saul seemed to respond to any kind of stress by taking off his clothes. It was Jonathan, the prince, Saul's son. And I found his response to all these things so challenging and actually really moving. And so he's who I'd like to look at tonight. Um, so what I'll do is I will read a bit of it. Don't worry, not 96 to you. Um, I'll read a little bit from the beginning of verse 18, although I'll probably come in from verse, um, chapter 17, just so you can see what's going on. As soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. I mean, so gross. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor and even his sword, his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. So the first thing we see here happening is that Jonathan becomes best friends with David. That is definitely not what my first response would be. If I saw a man wielding a beach ball of a head stood in my house, I would not be like, yeah, sure, let's hang out together. I'd, I'd be like, get rid of the head. And then I'd try and see if you know, we had some similarities. Like, oh, I like your sandals, David. Where are they from? I mean, I don't know what Jonathan likes. Oh, how would you kill another giant? I don't know. I don't know. That's one of my accents. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> And like vibe him out a bit to see if he's BFF appropriate rather than just being like, sure, let's be best friends straight away. But no, that's, you know, that's not what our man Jonathan does. He abs has absolutely no chill here. He goes straight in and says, and Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and loved him as his own soul. He's literally just met this person who is still, can I just say, still holding this head and he wants to be his best friend. He knits his soul. Imagine if after this meeting, I've not met you before, and I come up to you. Now, a normal person might be like, oh, hi, my name's Belinda. I'm a teacher. What do you do? Do you like this? What kind of music do you like? Maybe we could hang out sometime. Imagine if I came up to you, shook your hand, and just went, my soul is knit to yours. <laughs> like, this is so weird. Thankfully, you probably wouldn't be holding a giant's head. So I might be a bit, little bit more inclined. But that's what Jonathan does. He is clearly super intense. I mean, this, this is weird, right? Is it just me? I think this is weird. He is super, super intense here. This isn't how I make friends, but clearly it's how Jonathan makes friends. He's intense for a reason, though. His love for David here actually shows quite a lot, because this is a love that is transcending a lot of differences. Here we have the prince of a nation, famous, and this little shepherd that is actually kind of forgotten. His dad forgot about him when his dad was supposed to bring all his sons together. He forgot about David. This famous man and this forgotten man, a love that is transcending the norm, because this is not normal. Jonathan goes even further, though. He makes a covenant here with David. He basically is binding his soul to David, saying, I identify with you, I am with you. And it's in front of his father, too, which is a big deal. I mean, at this point, I'm sure his father thinks he's crazy. But it is a big deal. And it's not unlike the covenant of marriage. 
that you're, he's binding himself, heart and soul, onto David. This isn't romantic love between the two, though. It's very much a brotherly friendship. Um, but it goes beyond emotion here. He is saying, I'm with you. This is a lifelong commitment. But again, as we see from Jonathan, this isn't enough. Knitting, covenants, pfft, let's take off some clothes. So what he does is he takes off his robe, he takes off his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt, and he hands them over to David. I mean, you can just imagine him there trying to hold up his short, his, what would he wear, his tunic? I don't know, holding onto it desperately while he's handing over his belt. And all I could think was, what if this was one of our princes? We've got Charles, William, and Harry. If they suddenly started, you know, taking off, I guess they wear cloaks occasionally, if they were taking off their robes, or their little medals they've won, little, I shouldn't belittle them, their medals they've won, <laughs> their sword they're handing over, you know, Prince William's there with his belt, tugging it through those belt loops, you know, and it gets stuck, and you're desperately trying to tug it out, and then handing it to a random shepherd. Like, this, again, is super weird, right? Why is he doing this? Why is the son of the king giving everything to David? Because he sees that God is with David. He is being obedient to God by standing with David here, by choosing him to be his friend. Their friendship is founded on a common confidence in God's plan for Israel and their desire to be part of that plan. Right here, Jonathan is choosing to seek the kingdom of God first above anything else. So what does it mean to seek the kingdom for Jonathan? Well, befriending David. Because if we step back... This friendship is super surprising. I mean, yes, it's surprising. This whole thing is a bit strange, but they shouldn't be friends. David should be a threat to Jonathan, right? Because Jonathan is our prince. He is our heir. He is in line for the throne. Then David comes along, one little victory under his belt, and boop, he's going to be king. Jonathan is out. He's redundant. Jonathan didn't do anything wrong. David's just now managed to get his place. If anything, Jonathan should be giving him a hard time, striking him down, chasing him out the city, giving him the cold shoulder. But actually, Jonathan probably gives himself cold shoulders by giving David his robe. Now, a commentary I read said, only a remarkable person could exhibit this kind of gracious unselfishness. Jonathan's remarkable. He accepts David, accepts God's call on him, gives him everything. Everything that made him look like he was royal, he gives it to David. And put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. Wait, has he given those to David? We're good. Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. You have lived your life as a prince, lived your life looking at what is about to come. Living probably in royal quarters, being trained for that, going to war, you know, standing alongside your father and seeing what he does as king. Actually seeing your father be a bit of a pants king, because Saul wasn't that great. And probably thinking, you know, like you do in the back of your mind, oh, I'd be pretty good at that. Oh, I know what I'd do to change that. And then all of a sudden it's gone. Like I said, he didn't do anything wrong, Jonathan. He didn't disqualify himself. But it's gone. I mean, how would you feel? How would that make you feel knowing everything that was yours, was lost. I mean, we see how it makes Saul feel. He is absolutely desperate, selfish, ruled by his emotions, by his envy and his bitterness and jealousy, a man that is not at all free, trapped in what he wants as his kingdom. How easy it would have been for Jonathan to slip into that. Imagine being in the palace or wherever they live, the castle. I imagine it's more of a palace. I'm kind of envisioning a Disney castle, but I can't see Saul residing in that. But um, imagine 
your dad moaning, saying, I want to kill this guy. I hate this guy. Isn't he awful? Isn't he horrible? Like, look what he's taken. How easy it would have been for Jonathan to slip into, into that feeling, to be ruled by his emotions, by what the world told him he should be feeling. But hey, that's not how he acts at all. Bitterness and envy is not the path he touches. He is so unlike his father. He's not consumed by Saul's kingdom, by Saul's desires, but rather by another kingdom, God's kingdom. He can freely then lay down his entitlement. He's fine to put down what the world says is his because he is happy to submit to God's purpose for him, which is David. He couldn't have had this response without being settled in knowing God's sovereignty and God's goodness and kingship over that situation. He loved David more than the throne of Israel, which is crazy. He loved God more than he loved the throne of Israel. Jonathan was born royal, but didn't consider royalty a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself for the sake of God's plan. He didn't just humble himself for the sake of God's plan. He went further. He didn't just say, yep, that's fine. David, have the throne. I'm done. He said, no, yep, that's fine. David, have the throne. I am with you 100%. I love you as much as I love my own soul, which is incredible. The next few chapters, you see him fighting David's corner. You see him encouraging him, loving him, supporting him, un like unfailing loyalty right to the end. He loves this man completely. In fact, he's such an echo of Jesus, or I guess a precursor of Jesus rather than an echo, humbling himself for us. It says a book in the Bible in Philippians, um, some of you might know this quite well, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. That's Jonathan here, completely humbling himself and becoming such servant-hearted man to look after David. He gave it all so the one he loved could gain it all. Saul was held captive by his desires. He was not free. Jonathan, completely free. He looked to the kingdom of God manifested in David in this story, just like we can. We can look to our true king, Jesus. We can look past worldly gain. We can look past everything because his riches are ours. We can choose to be like Jonathan and choose not to worry about position and status because there is only one position that should matter, the position of our King Jesus. And he is reigning and his position isn't changing anytime soon. Worldly things don't last. Positions don't stand. In heaven, I'm not going to lead an evening meeting. I'm not going to be a biology teacher or have various promotions or whatever I might get from my job. That passes away. It says in one John, a book in the Bible, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Living in Jesus' kingdom means we're called to love each other, serve each other, strengthen each other, just like Jonathan to David. On paper, their relationship should not have worked, right? But because of a gracious and humble heart, like what amazing things Jonathan achieved. Jonathan didn't gossip about David. He wasn't jealous or bitter. He was unwavering in his love and commitment to him. And just imagine, it had me thinking, imagine if we were a community who always WWJD'd, what would Jonathan do? If we just thought like that in every situation, if we were able to be like him and see where God was working or who God was working through, if we were able to be completely loving, strengthening and supporting to each other, even perhaps if the situation's a bit sucky. Maybe someone got the position of leadership you wanted in the church. Someone got better exam results than you. But if we were like Jonathan 
We will be so full of love and encouragement for that. In our kingdom, there should be no gossip or bitter or jealousy. It's love and encouragement. And that's hard because that's what our world tells us not to do. It tells us to seek and look after ourselves. But acting like that, making those choices, brings the kingdom more. That's what the kingdom of Jesus is like. Like, imagine if we had that. Imagine if there were the choices we always made. Imagine if we could be a Jonathan. Always humble, always loving. But for Jonathan, it wasn't just befriending David. It also meant to seek God's kingdom. It means it has, you have to be okay, and for Jonathan, be okay with letting things go. We've seen that he let his royal status go. He made such a show of it, actually, by taking off the things that made him royal. But also letting his family go and his future as a king go, to be obedient to God and to follow him despite the risks. Because this choice was risky for Jonathan. His very best friend was his father's worst enemy, the one his father was desperate to kill. Imagine what a hard choice that must have been, stood there thinking, friend or father. I can't imagine being in that position. It must have been quite dangerous in those times, too, to go against your father. Well, actually, it was dangerous for Jonathan. He got a spear hurled at him, missed, obviously. But it was dangerous. What a hard choice he had to make. And he made these choices, even though he had the most to lose and the least to gain. He made them because he chose to follow God's plans every time over his own. And it's because he knew what was going to happen, right? He knew exactly the end goal. No, well, he didn't. He didn't know that. These choices were made day to day by faith and not sight, that God is sovereign and God is good and he would bring his kingdom. Jonathan wasn't looking ahead to three weeks' time, going, I'm going to love David with an agenda for three weeks because then God will do this. Mm -mm. He just made that choice because he knew God's kingdom would come every time he made those choices, which I think is so challenging, isn't it? Laying stuff down is hard, though. Jonathan makes it look easy. You know, it's all summarized quite nicely in pity ways in the Bible. And it's so easy to say, oh, sweet, lay that down, give that up, be okay to not be married, be okay to not have that career prospect. Easy to say, hard to do. Because letting things go, especially when we feel they're ours, we've earned them, they're good, we've worked hard for them, is actually really painful. I was having a think, and there's always... I'm forever having to let things go because I think, oh, this is great for me. I'll hang on to this and then realize I don't need it and have to chuck it out. The usual. Same with clothes. Story of my life. <laughs> Big wardrobe. <laughs> um, but I was thinking back to when I had just applied to uni and um, someone challenged me on, I guess, my future. And I had worked super, super hard to, because I was desperate to become a vet. So I think from about 11, every half term, I worked at rescue centers, vet surgeries, farms, et cetera, et cetera. I'd worked at um, a sheep farm since I was 14 till 18. I used to get up at 2 a.m. and milk cows. I like, gave up a lot to just work hard at school. My parents gave up a lot for me to do well and go to school, like good schools. Um, I put a lot into it, and so I wanted to be a vet. Sweet, I applied. I was waiting to hear back, I think, from two unis at this point. Um, and I was pretty certain, you know, that was the life I was going to live. I wanted to specialize in small and large animals, particularly farm. Um, I had it all mapped out. And someone said to me, hey, would you give it up if God asked? I was like, of course I would. Yeah, sure, not a problem. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> they asked again, and I was like, oh, okay. I'll have a think. And um, I went away and thought about it. And I was like, 
But God, I've, I've worked hard for this. It's fine, right? Like, it doesn't, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad dream. You say dreams are good. I've got this. That's wonderful. It's such a good thing. And you can fit in around it. And I can, you know, tell my colleagues about you while I'm doing it. And then kind of waited a bit more. I was like, oh, okay, fine. You can take the large and small animal thing. I will be whatever vet you want. But I'm definitely still going to be a vet. I'm definitely still going to get into uni. It's going to be absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. And then, God, I don't mind which uni it is. I really don't mind. You can take that. That is fine. I submit that fully to you. But I'm still going to be a vet. I'm definitely going to do it. Don't worry about that. My parents worked too hard for me not to be one. And it got to the point where I suddenly realized I was batting constantly between the two. That every time God tried to whisk me away, get me a little bit free, get me to enjoy him, I had to be run back to this dream that I was holding. Now, dreams are good. I'm not saying being a vet's bad at all. But my relationship with my future was the bad part. I was chained to that. Every time I tried to give a bit to God, it brought me straight back in. I couldn't do stuff for him when I was planning my own future because I don't know what my future is in him, but I just trust that he has a much better one for me. And I had to give that up. And I'm not saying it was then easy because I'd worked that out. I remember sitting with some friends, crying and grieving over this thing that I'd carried for then, I guess, six, seven years. Um, and being really upset by that. But my days, the freedom I felt afterwards is so sweet. Because submission to God brings so much freedom. It doesn't mean we've lost. I'm not a loser. Well, I don't know, it might say different. I'm not a loser because I'm not a vet. I haven't got the raw end of the deal. I'm not, like, my dreams aren't dead. He just knows so much better than I do. He just wanted me to get free from this absolute sort of fierce grip that I had on this future, that it had over me, so he could free me up to enjoy him, to not worry and fret and try and put everything together and make sure my kingdom was fine, but actually go and seek his kingdom where I can completely chill out and not worry about my future because he's got my back 100%. He knew that day that I submitted that exactly where I'd be now. He knew that day exactly where I'll be in 40 years' time. Hey, I might be a vet. Who knows? I don't need to worry about that, though. I don't need to work for that and strive for it because he's got it sorted by submitting and saying, yeah, do you know what, God? I follow what you call me to do. I'm dead to that. Don't worry about me being a vet. I'm with you. I have so much more freedom. By seeking his kingdom first, we can live a life of such, such freedom. Jesus walked in obedience, seeking God's kingdom first too. When just before he was betrayed um, by one of his disciples and before he died, he was praying to God. So knowing he was about to die, he prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nor as I will, but as you will. And then my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He knew he was about to die, and I'm sure he probably didn't want to go through with it. But in the same breath of saying, is there any other way? In that very same breath, he said, your will. He submitted by doing that. Our willingness to lay things down and trust in obedience, like Jonathan, like Jesus, brings so much freedom. This weird paradoxical, if I'm obeying someone, how can I be free? But trust me, being in his kingdom brings so much freedom. Obeying what he calls you to do, obeying his voice, the smallest thing he says, making those choices like Jonathan to not gossip, brings so much joy, so much freedom. 
Letting go of that tight grip you have, whether it be relationships, getting married, um, doing super, super well at uni and getting that career you really need. Letting that go, that vice it holds us in, can bring so much freedom and so much possibility for what God has planned for you. Because he had something planned for you before he even planned Jupiter, before he even planned the rings on Saturn. He had something planned for you. He knows what it might be. It might be the dream that you hold, but be careful not to hold that too tight and let that risk you losing out on what he has for you. From that very first meeting of David, Jonathan glimpsed the kingdom of God and the call of God. His response, take everything, I'm with you. And now we see Jesus, God's anointed and the king. And we have the same choice as Jonathan and Saul. In a worldly sense, yes, that can mean loss. We lay down the things that the world puts value on. Dreams, money, time, relationships, careers. We're called to love, to serve, to give. All of these things are us giving ourselves to others. But what we gain is so much more. What we gain far outweighs what we leave behind. We gain the character of Christ. We become more like him. We gain joy in a kingdom that is everlasting, peace in a kingdom that is everlasting. We gain an inheritance, a royal status, riches. These things are like eternal. They never run out. They never dry up. They will go on forever. The kingdom of God can become manifest in us. Every tiny little choice we make for him, the kingdom can advance a little bit more. Every choice like Jonathan. Oh, David's been a bit of a silly one today. Should I join him with my dad and gossip about him? Or should I encourage him? He encourages him. Every tiny little choice like that, the smallest thing, encouraging the person that beat you, perhaps, to a position that you wanted, strengthening someone in leadership that maybe you're a little bit jealous of, makes that kingdom come ever so little bit nearer. Now, Jesus summed this all up in a line. I could have just read that, couldn't I, and not waffled at you for who knows how long. But Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you. He's not saying to build your own kingdom, to worry about what you're doing. He says, seek my kingdom, because his kingdom is real. It's so much better than anything we could ever construct, anything we could build ourselves, anything we could dream for ourselves. So much better. So don't build your own kingdom. Seek his. Seek his.